All right, we are back. We mentioned, uh, I guess on last week's program, that uh, the occupation of Wall Street wasn't getting a whole lot of press. Well, there's been quite a bit in the last week. The day after we made those comments, the Sacramento Bee had an opinion piece on that very topic titled, Protesters Have a Point, comma, If Not Yet a Platform. The editors noted that the Occupy Wall Street protests uh, started in New York, and now they've spread across the country, including Sacramento and Davis. This was compared to the Tea Party movement, noting that both are distrustful of what they see as excessive power and its negative impact on the lives of ordinary Americans. But while the Tea Party movement's focused on government, the Wall Street protesters are focusing on the power of corporations. And I would hasten to add, Wall Street traders. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke spoke before Congress last week and said, I think people are quite unhappy with the state of the economy and what's happening. They blame, with some justification, the problems in the financial sector for getting us into this mess, and they're dissatisfied with the policy response here in Washington. And, and at some level, I can't blame them. Of course, that's, that's very big of you, Mr. Bernanke. Because it would seem that, uh, you know, not many people have gone to jail, if anybody, and there doesn't seem to be any major change in the rules of how these various uh, strange financial instruments are being traded and pawned off on the public. A couple of weeks ago, a 31-year-old trader over in Europe, Koweku Adaboli, was charged with losing $2.3 billion, that's with a B, $2.3 billion of UBS's money without the Swiss bank noticing. The authorities have noted it's, it's unclear at this point how Adaboli, who executed large-scale trades at the bank's London office, dug himself into such a ma- massive hole. But the Wall Street Journal noted that since he was ar- arrested three years to the day after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, it's, quote, almost irresistible to conclude that Wall Street has learned nothing from past mistakes, unquote. I think for once the Wall Street Journal got that one right. Over in Europe, the London Telegraph, apparently one of Rupert Murdoch's right-wing uh, enterprises, said that, well, UBS is big enough to swallow up the financial loss, but the damage to its reputation is so grave that its investment banking days may be numbered. Whereas they said, well, let's be honest, we can't be certain that rogue traders won't be able to evade any rules that regulators devise, since they're so adept at hiding their losses. It might be a good idea to try, though, don't you think? Writing in Reuters.com, Felix Salmon said that, uh, well, banks set themselves up for disaster in the first place by hiring, quote, congenital risk takers, unquote, and rewarding them with massive bonuses for taking big chances. It's a statistical inevitability that one or two of them will go rogue every year or so. Of course, Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone said, I'm sorry, but it's high time we did away with the term rogue traders. We always trot it out when an investment banking newbie loses a few billion dollars in disastrous trades. But making insanely irresponsible decisions with other people's money is exactly the job description of a lot of people on Wall Street. Hell, they don't call these guys rogue traders when they make billions of dollars gambling. These guys get corner offices. Personally, I hope that uh, these, these, uh, these protests get a lot of publicity and a lot of attention drawn to uh, some problems that are not being fixed on trading is going on in Wall Street and other locations. I hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California, none of whom, to our knowledge, are or ever have been rogue traders. 
And we certainly know our opinions are not in sync with those of the London Daily Telegraph, at least Tim Stanley, who wrote in there about the Wall Street protesters that, well, surely you don't expect coherence from young white hippies living on trust funds. Many of these protesters are professional agitators who jet around the world from riot to riot, a cause on every continent, a ring in every orifice. I don't know, Mr. Stanley, I remember back in the 1970s when there were anti-war protests in the United States and it was claimed by the FBI and others that uh, these were professional agitators leading these rebellions across the country. I remember seeing a government guy with about a 400-millimeter lens walking around the quad on the UC Davis campus snapping pictures of everyone he could see holding a placard or marching. I don't believe that any of them turned out to be agitators sent in by Moscow. But back to the B opinion piece. The paper noted that this new movement is not anti-tax in contrast to the Tea Party. The people drawn to these protests believe the government should be an agent of progress, but has been hijacked. They see a confluence of selfish elites resisting or evading reasonable taxes. The nation's highest court treating corporate, quote, persons, unquote, as the equal of human beings is viewed as being a part of the problem. The B opined that Wall Street and the larger business community had better start doing some deep soul-searching and examining what really is the best way to distribute the gains of, of productivity between prices, wages, and profits to assure employment and prosperity. They recommend that for their part, President Obama and members of Congress should focus on the basics, the perception that the game is rigged for the moneyed class and against the little guy. Which reminds me of a quote we thought about using as our quote of the day. The Italian journalist Carade Alvero said, The blackest despair that can take hold of any society is the fear that living honestly is futile. Anyway, as far as what's going on locally, we're referring to the article. It's probably on the web by Cynthia Hubert and Daryl Smith about the protest wave that swept into our state capitol here last week. Article quoted Annie Anderson of Roseville saying, I want people to know that it's not just the fringe element here. I've been a taxpayer and I'm a mom. Last week, even the president was moved to respond to questions about the Wall Street protests. He said, I think people are frustrated and the protesters are giving voice to a more broad-based frustration about how our financial system works. The American people understand that not everybody's been following the rules. The Wall Street is an example of that. And that's going to express itself politically in 2012 and beyond. Maybe. Opinions do seem to be divided in this country along party lines. The Republicans are poo-pooing these protests, and the Democrats are giving it a uh, sort of an arm's-length embrace. Writing in the LA Times, James Oliphant said, For a while, the Democratic establishment appeared to view the protests as something of a crazy relative. Earlier this week, the party's House campaign arm made it clear that it stood shoulder to shoulder with the movement. It's pretty clear the Republican Party is not seeing this as any, as any sort of middle-class rebellion. But then, of course, to quote our good pal Will Durst, the Republican Party's idea of the middle class seems to be Thurston Howell III. All right, Mr. Merlin is trying to hook up with our, our good pal Will Durst. One final item, again related to the B. I guess we're just going to give the B a lot of plaudits today. We love the article by Sam McManus from the October 2nd uh, living section about one of our favorites, the Old Farmer's Almanac. By the way, people over at the B, after we've been paying all these compliments, would you mind imitating the Chronicle and having an almanac section? The Chronicle's piece uh, every Sunday showing what's going on locally and in the skies and temperatures around the world is pretty good. You, you guys should do one too.
Mr. McManus notes that Almanac editors report selling 3 million copies every year via newsstands, grocery and hardware store checkout aisles, and bookstores, and the web. But uh, spokesman said the Almanac gets passed around a lot and is actually read by an estimated 9 million people, which explains a mystery I never understood. It's why every edition has a hole in the upper corner. Apparently that's so farmers could hang it from a peg in the outhouse for workers to peruse in... um, contemplative moments. And in the piece, Sam McManus noted that uh, about 20 years ago, the editors surveyed readers asking them if they would object if the hole was removed. (laughs) Apparently there was outrage. So we kept it in, even though it costs thousands of dollars to drill three million almanacs with that little hole. And of course, the almanacs has had a reputation over the years of predicting weather accurately, which I think, frankly, it probably doesn't deserve. In fact, in the article, they tried to find some farmers who relied upon the almanac and came up empty. Apparently, Bob Bell, a walnut grower in winters, sniffed, we find no use for the almanac in today's world of technology. And while Radio Parallax does not endorse using the old farmer's almanac to make long-range weather predictions, we think it's a great source for all kinds of cool data. In fact, I'm looking at page 100 now and reminded of the fact that this next year, 2012, we'll see two interesting events in the sky. A May 20th annular eclipse of the sun. We've talked about this in the show before. It's going to pass right over Northern California through Reno, Nevada, and down into Albuquerque, New Mexico. This will be a very cool event. We recommend you taking some time to go see it, dear listener. Of course, bring along Sufficient eye protection. You cannot look at this directly. And as long as you have your calendars out and you're marking May 20th on it, also mark June 5th. The Old Farmer's Almanac points out that there will be a transit of Venus, something that happens in a an eight-year cycle every 121 years. This June 5th transit will mark the conclusion of an eight-year cycle that started back in June 04 when Venus passed in front of the sun. It won't do it again until well into the 22nd century. So uh, you want to check this, uh, this phenomenon out? You better do it this time. Anyway, we'll have more to say about both those events in the new year. And of course, we will be quoting from time to time from the Old Farmer's Almanac. All right, Mr. McMillan has now uh, made the phone contact, as promised at the top of the show. We have America's foremost political comic ready to talk to us. Mr. Will Durst, welcome back. Hey, Doug, how's it going, man? Things are good, good. I want to I note that we, we hear a lot from people uh, about uh, enjoying your commentaries on our show. They ask when you're going to be around, and, and there's, a, there's a Durst Fest taking place locally right now. Indeed, indeed there is. I'm doing my <laughs> I-80 tour uh, Thursday night. And the lovely Vacaville at the Naval Museum in history or something. And then uh, Friday night in Sacramento and Saturday in Davis. Yeah, now I noticed that this uh, tonight you'll be at the Vallejo Naval and Historical Museum, which doesn't sound like the normal venue for you. How did that happen? Uh, you know, I'm such a, I'm such a whore. I'll work anywhere, honest <laughs> to God. And they had a space and they get a subscription list and... Uh, and uh, it's a percentage gig, so, uh, you know, I need all the bodies that I can get. All right, well, I suppose you'll be doing some comedy about the Doolittle Raid and such things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good knowledge, man. That's good naval knowledge. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about Japan. <laughs> I'll definitely bring up the big one. 
and uh, the fact that I didn't go to Vietnam. Well, October 14th, uh, that's tomorrow night. You're appearing at the Democratic Party of Sacramento County, right, in McKinley Park, Clooney Hall. But uh, I presume that independents and Republicans will also be welcome. Oh, yes, anybody, anybody. And, you know, it's so easy right now. I mean, they just keep writing the stuff for me. The Republicans are taking each other out. I mean, you know, normally it's the Democrats who form the circular firing squad. And the Republicans who abide by Reagan's 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill. But they're not just ignoring it. I mean, they're not stepping on that commandment. I mean, they're using football cleats and kicking it down the sewer with a broken rake handle. Rick Perry is a, a cornucopia of delights, and <laughs> Mitt Romney is so lifelike. And uh, I want Hermagain to win the Republican nomination just to watch Southerners walk into the polls and had to choose between two black men. <laughs> the little heads will pop right off. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Saturday, Davis Music Theater Company presents. That, that again, how, did, how does that work? You know, I actually did that gig once before. I did it like three or four years ago. And it's a, a gorgeous little theater run by this uh, lovely couple. And they mostly do, you know, musicals. And then when they have like a weekend free, they try to do some uh, different things. And I'm one of the different things. I, I guess I'm, I'm the crop rotation, you know. <laughs> they're done with Most Happy Fella, and, and they're just gearing up with the boyfriend, and uh, I'm in between. And congratulations for getting that, that lead role in Brigadoon, Will. That's, that's, I'm, I'm... Ah, yes. Ah, I'm working on my brogue. <laughs> no, but I started in, in uh, musical theater, man. I was in West Side Story twice. No. I was in, I was in those two plays I mentioned, Most Happy Fella and The Boyfriend. I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff. So. I did not know that. Yeah, when I first moved to San Francisco, because... I moved from Wisconsin because comedy was illegal, and the first thing that I did was stand-up. You know, the first week I was here, uh, I worked eight clubs, so I was like in comedy heaven. And then I got you know, into a musical play, and it was called uh, Not Just Another One Night Stand, and it was down on, right on Broadway in Mabue Gardens. And uh, a little rock and roll musical. It was uh, a lot of fun. I, I, didn't, I did not know that you belted out tunes. I, well, not anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't even think I could do the Lee Marvin part and paint your wig. <laughs> All right, Will Durst, uh, always a pleasure. We hope that a lot of people that uh, that have uh, learning about you here on this show are going to look up to see. I'm sure that many will, and uh, we'll come out and see ourselves. Oh, we will mock and scoff and taunt, honest to God, but we'll do it with Dave. Thank you, Doug. All right, and we'll, and we'll also bring you back in a couple weeks to talk about this KZFR benefit taking place on October 27th. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be in Chico for a night for an uh, uh, NPR station. That's right. You and Michael Perenni, social commentator, which is, uh, which is a pretty full evening right there. All right, Will. Thanks, man. Take it easy. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Stay out of trouble or get in some and tell me about it so I can live through your vicarious. <laughs> All right. Okay, bye-bye. It's always a pleasure with Mr. Durst, isn't it? Anyway, we are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You, of course, have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.